This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Gwen. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we are back with another installment of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. This is the first time in a while we're actually discussing a documentary movie, isn't it, Eric Shaw Quinn? I think for the last few Right, we did South by Southwest or Salem by Southwest or what was the name of that? Southwest of Salem. South of Salem. Yeah. Southwest of Salem. Yeah. We um, started off doing documentary movies with True Crime TV Club, and then we pretty quickly moved into TV series. We've done a lot of those, and this was actually a documentary. And we like a little. We like them to be a little on the. I like them to be a little on the trashy side, but um, but it's also nice to explore more in depth, um, and I don't know. Serious. I, that isn't really the right word. All crime and murder is serious, but. Well, this is unique, as you pointed out at the end of our last episode. And I just, I'll do my usual disclaimers. Our our goal here is to break down and serve up the episode in enough detail for you that. Uh, you do not have to have watched it to know what we're talking about and can maybe feel like you have watched it when you're done listening to us. Uh, th- this is a documentary called Rewind. It is available on Amazon Prime. I think it's probably available other places, but it can be watched with an Amazon probably, Prime subscription. Probably, but if you have an Amazon, yeah, it's, it's uh, free with that. So. And there was something about it that got your attention, Eric Shawquin, when you were looking up documentaries, and what was that? Wow, I feel like now I'm on the game show. Uh, can I call a lifeline? I'm going to call my friend Christopher and ask well, him what it it's was. Exactly the, what you said. The when autobiographical. You it, at the end of our last, yeah, yes, it, it is. Yeah, it is. It is the story of the filmmaker himself. It is not some third-person observation. It is somebody literally telling you their own story. Um, he is ultimately the victim in this story, and. Uh, tells his story of how that unfolded for him um, as a child and on into adulthood. It, it is, it's, it was a really, I was like, okay, well, when I watched the trailer, I thought, I, I really want to know what happens. And so I suggested it to Christopher and we decided to go all in and do a longer, slightly longer. It's still, I think, a little over an hour. It's an hour and 20 minutes, I think. Um, but it's yes, longer than it our usual hour, 45 yeah. minute, sometimes red rum, 20 minute fare. Um, but and thank God it was 20 minutes because it was what it was. Yeah, I think also, I'm just going to say this, and I don't mean to get too, uh, too ahead of ourselves here. Maybe some of the most disturbing and explicit descriptions of child sexual abuse in any documentary I've ever seen about the topic. And not sure if I would have been okay with that if the victim hadn't literally been the director of the right. film, which he is. Yeah, it's and him telling his story, so 
his honesty is like, all right, well, you're allowed to tell whatever you want to. It's your story. It seems less salacious as a result. It doesn't seem yes. like the details are being explored for a, you know, sort of uh, for any other purpose. You know, they're not trying to be lurid. He is literally telling you what happened to him in a sort of broader way. I, we should probably go ahead and get started before because right, sure. we can tell the whole story in dribs and drabs by commenting on it. But, but that was sort of the initial appeal for me. I saw that trailer and thought, wow, that looks really intense and is something I would like to, you know, know more about. I want to know what this guy's story is. Right. And this guy is Sasha Newlinger. He is the director and he is also the subject of the documentary When It Begins. When It Begins, he is a little boy. And around the time of his birth, uh, we're hearing the account in narration from his mother, Jackie, who was saying that when she went into labor with Sasha, her husband, Sasha's father, was nowhere around. And nobody, they, he'd been called, he'd been told that Jackie was going into labor. Why wasn't he at the hospital? He finally shows up several hours late, and the reason he is late is because he had purchased a video camera, which then became kind of part of the fabric of their lives. It now, really is kind to, of yeah. uh, one of the most remarkable aspects of this story is that it is, as a result, his father also is a documentarian who works for PBS. Right. He's an Emmy award-winning mm -hmm. documentarian, so... Like it is the documentation of their family and of this story is expansive. So it's not slides and whatever. It's thousands of hours of um, very personal video of him as a child and growing up and going through this process as filmed by not only himself, but when he was younger, his own father. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I guess... It's an interesting structure in the beginning of the documentary because we're bouncing around a little bit, but we're, we're, we're told pretty early on that there's some sort of abuse that's going to be documented. There's something that happened to this family, something that the, the camera is sort of going to capture the progression of or some evidence of. But there is a moment where Sasha is visiting his father. It's also pretty clear that his father, Henry, and his mother, Jackie, are now divorced. They're no longer together. They have different last names when they're interviewed and their title cards. And um, he, t he goes down to his father's and basement. And they never appear together. That's right. That, I didn't notice that. They never appear on camera together. And most of this is Sasha going to visit and talk with people, uh, with the cameras going along, of course, who are integral to this story, to his story. Right. And he visits both of the parents individually. Uh, he goes to see his father. His father shows him this. Um, I guess storage closet full of is it film it's reels like the or basement. Well, there's both. I mean, it is just a massive amount. It is a vault of uh, yeah. film reels and videotapes. Just it, it's an enormous. It's a it's a very impressive. And one even gets the impression that maybe it's it's not all of their family. Like he says mm -hmm. as he's explaining why he has all of the footage. He says when people have a joyous moment in their life, that's when they get out the video camera. Like, right. And so you get all of these moments of these above the, the norm moments, like, you know, mm -hmm. significant moments in people's lives by looking at the things that they have chosen to film. They don't film. And then I went to the grocery store and picked up the dry cleaning. They film only the sort of the highlights of their, 
their um, their moments uh, of their lives. And so he kind of, but then he says, but if you look beyond that, you know, mm-hmm. as he has done in this particular case, it's clear that there was another story unfolding in the background. Absolutely. Uh, so we then get some backstory about Henry and Jackie's marriage. The introduction of the camera is finished off with Jackie saying she didn't really like that the camera entered their lives in this way. And she felt Henry began to hide behind it, that it was a buffer between him and the family. And they show some footage of her sort of asking that the camera be taken off of her during a little family moment with the grandparents and baby Sasha on the sofa. And she's like, I don't want to be in this video, Henry. I don't want to, you know, go film them. This is their video. And it's like, Oh boy, this is (laughs) the beginning. um, So they met Henry and Jackie when they were much younger. Jackie was working as a graphic designer in Philadelphia and Henry was living in Maine and creating content for their PBS stations, as you said earlier. Uh, They married quickly. They found a fixer upper in the Philadelphia suburbs and turned it into quite a nice looking house. Great house. Beautiful yard. Yeah. Um, Everything seems kind of idyllic. Sasha is a... There's a lot of footage of him as a little boy. He's cheerful, joyful, interactive is how his mother Jackie describes him. He could be present with you and, uh, you know, curious about the world. And Right. He's, he's really, he's quite the, um, the uh, perspicacious little kid and very curious and very active and, uh, you know, very sort of um, engaged with life and with other people. And when they when he goes to kindergarten they tested him and found that he was you know even more remarkable than uh, appearances might uh, have indicated right and he's yeah he tested a very high level he's and he's put in a I, I guess it's the equivalent of a gifted and talented program for kindergartners or something you know they 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 realize that he's you know going to need the kind of extra attention that exceptional children need And then something changes, and it changes very quickly. It changes between kindergarten and first grade. He suddenly begins struggling with reading and writing. And suddenly this exceptional child needs a different kind of support. Right. Um, He also no longer wants to attend school. And they start to show footage that sort of documents the behavioral shift in this little boy. He becomes kind of darker and surlier. And it seemed, to my eye at least, to be happening... They're the kind of changes you usually associate with adolescence, but they're happening in like a four-year-old. So it was a little disconcerting. He's having little tantrums that don't seem to fit with his previous personality. They're like demon child moments. There's some stuff that was, there was some, like some moments with him as a kid, just being on camera, just being a kid on camera that were disturbing for me, even above and beyond the, the, uh, the accounts of, uh, of abuse and even the things that people were describing of him and his behavior, there were things that they filmed that kid doing that were like, Oh, Oh my God, something is wrong. Yeah. And it was anger, right? It was, that was the thing that was jumping out of me. That is a lot of anger for a four year old. Yeah. 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 It reminded me in a way of uh, Millie Bobby Brown's performance in that, uh, that strange, I think it was an AMC show called, the visitors, intruders, the intruders, intruders where she yeah. was channeling a 40 year old man. Mm-hmm. She's a brilliant mm-hmm. actress, even as a child. And if you haven't seen that show, sadly, there's only one season, but it's worth seeing to see her performance. 
Um, but it had that kind of quality. The level of his anger and response was mature way beyond the years of a child, the age that we were seeing. It was, right, it was as though, it was like, you know, like the devil possessing Marin in The Exorcist, that voice coming mm-hmm. out of it. it was It was just startling. Yeah, and for it to set in as quickly as it did in, in less than a year's time, it's, it, it's, it's pronounced. So Jackie then describes, and she describes this to Sasha. They're sitting together, adult oh Sasha, at a table. She said, I picked you up from school one day. I brought you home, and I began to draw you a bath. And when you hit the water, you began to cry. And what you said was, there are swords in my penis. And this is going to get really difficult. And it turned out there was an abrasion on this little boy's penis. And so she took him to the pediatrician. And the only thing that Sasha would say to the doctor is another boy pinched me. Um, and so she, Jackie says to the doctor, it's, it's sounding like my son was abused. And the doctor's response to her, which she quotes almost verbatim, is you don't want to open that door, Jackie. Because if you report this, They will come and they will remove your husband from the house and it will be terrible for your family. That that was the reflexive response from the family pediatrician to to evidence, physical evidence that the child had been abused. But the flip side of that is part of what we explore in this process is that contemporaneously in that moment, because the way the legal system was working at that time, the doctor was kind of right like mm-hmm. it was not like one of the things that was as fascinating about this story as as um, Sasha telling us his own story of abuse was his abuse by the system itself at the mm-hmm. hands of the system itself. The doctor had some insight into that because he had probably seen it happen to to other people. The system was not well set up, and I don't know if it is now, but clearly the system at that time was not well set up to, in a loving and caring way, help the child who was actually making the report. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. So in terms of the documentary structure, we sort of ping off of Jackie's dark announcement from the doctor that if she reports this, her husband will become the number one suspect into an interview with her husband that sort of takes us back in time a little bit into the history of Henry's family. The, the, his, the father's family, essentially. And he describes his own mother as gregarious, but emotionally unavailable. And that when other people are around, she's a big sort of joker. And when they're not around, she just mercilessly ridicules and, in his words, emasculates their father, who is a very sort of passive, quiet man. And Henry said he adapted to this environment by becoming kind of a joker and maybe also being the cameraman later in life, sort of being apart from and keeping people separate. 
Um, and Henry then describes in the present of what we've been witnessing, getting the call from Jackie, his wife, and being called into a therapist's office and being told that Sasha has made statements suggesting he's been sexually abused by an adult and Henry is now the prime suspect. And uh, Henry says the therapist cannot even really look him in the eye as he's saying this. And I'm thinking, so this announcement was made. Sasha's not removed from the home, if I'm remembering correctly, and jump in if I'm getting this wrong, because the documentary in this is kind of bouncing around a little bit. So, But Henry is not removed from the home, or Henry's not barred from going to the home. Sasha's not removed from the home, but this announcement has been made, and then they all have to go home together. And it's like, I can't even imagine... Because obviously, Henry immediately pleads his innocence and says, I had nothing to do with Clearly, any of this. Clearly, yeah. I mean, that's... But, yeah. And he's as he's continuing to be a part of the um, the story and the telling and the unfolding, you kind of... It's sort of like, it's spoiler alert, but really, like, yeah. it seems clear from the start that it isn't him because he's still involved with the story and still involved with Sasha, and one can hardly imagine that that would continue to be true if... We're looking at this from the aftermath of of this kind of crisis. So it seems like they began a sort of family therapeutic of trying to um, deal with Sasha and with the changes in Sasha together and trying to move forward with the process of discovering or becoming um, aware that he may be being abused. And so Henry's interviews about his own family continue and were introduced to Stuart, who is, in fact, another adult male living in the home. And this is Henry's nephew. He is the second son of Henry's brother, Larry. And he was recently discharged from the Air Force and he wanted to go home and live with his parents. But his mother had remarried and the stepfather didn't want him back because he was 18. And he said, when you're 18, you strike out on your own and you make your own life. So he went to live with Henry and Jackie right, and the which, kids. So that didn't work. So Sasha begins treatment um, with a Dr. Herbert Lustig, a psychiatrist who becomes kind of a central figure in all of this. And they are leaving the psychiatrist's office. And Sasha has a little baby sister, Becca, who up until now, he is just absolutely adored. She was like the light of his life. They show footage of him coming home and just running into her arms because he wants to see her so bad after a day of school. Right. Um, Jackie's driving the car and Becca starts crying terribly in the back seat. And when she turns around and looks at what's happening, she sees Sasha is twisting Becca's chest. And she says, what are you doing? And he says, quote, I'm doing a titty twister. And then he says, Becca has a private club with Stuart. And if I were you, I would want to know what was going on in that club. Can you imagine a four- that's a such, it's such mature phrasing for a four-year-old? Well, you know? he is an exceptional child, so I guess that that's part of what informs this experience is that he is really a bright child, and that that brightness, that acute mind, is being focused on this dark and terrible situation. Right. So Jackie gets them home, and she sits little Becca down, and she says can you tell me about this private club? And she says, I can't say anything about it. I'm not allowed. And rather than losing her shit, as I might, <laughs> as a totally. parent in that situation. I would completely have lost my mind. But Jackie, um, with the patience of a saint, says, can you draw? 
what you do in this private club. And she draws an incredibly disturbing picture that I almost don't want to describe, but which they show, which is clearly an indication of terrible sexual yeah. abuse. And I mean, there's no... We have talked about this on the show before. We have covered other cases in which abuse allegations seem to have been implanted in the minds of children or inflated or manufactured. There is no arguing with the imagery of this drawing. No. It is it is so It is clear right up front that something bad is happening. Um we go to adult Sasha. Again, a reminder, he's actually the director of all that we're seeing. And he says, in retrospect, he looks back and he thinks the only reason he started speaking up was because he knew that Becca was also being abused and he cared more about her than he cared about himself, Absolutely. his baby sister. Yeah, his care for himself is really, it, it got threadbare. Yeah. Um, Sasha begins, he continues in treatment with Dr. Lustig and they continue this, I don't know if art therapy is the right word for it, but they're basically finding that it's easier for children to draw these things than it is for them to talk about them. And he draws a scene of abuse that seems to clearly feature two of his uncles. His uncle Larry, who is Stuart's father, and his uncle Harold. And Howard. Uncle Harold, oh, Howard, damn it. Sorry, my notes are wrong. Uncle Howard, who was introduced briefly earlier as the favorite son of yeah, He's like family. the family star. He's a yeah. noted opera singer. He's a big deal. He's a very yeah. successful um opera singer and a cantor for the largest um, reformed Reformed Jewish church in the world or in the the country. The Temple Emmanuel in in New York City. Yeah. So um, this is is devastating news for the family. And um, around this time, we now begin interviewing adult Becca. And I got to tell you something as a viewer here. we went so long before we saw adult Becca. I was braced for some oh terrible my God, news right, that she some had not terrible, survived yeah. this ordeal. But there she was. She was being interviewed. She looked um, healthy and grown-up woman, young woman. And um, uh, she says at this point she overhears, as a child, a terrible fight between Jackie and Henry, her parents, in which Jackie basically accuses Henry of letting abusers into their house. How could you not have known that these men were doing this to our children. And we're going to address that question in a fuller way as we proceed through the documentary, but it's clear that this family is under an enormous amount of stress and strain. Um, We cut to the Lower Marion Police Department, and again, we're following an adult Sasha on this journey of talking to all of the major players that were involved in this, and he's clearly going to talk to the detective Right, his family reached out to. Yeah, really interesting choice. I really liked that that was included, that it was not only just a discussion of his abuse, but it was a discussion of his experience with speaking up. Right. Um, On October 29th, 1998, October 29th is becoming a strange date around here that was also the date that William Newton's remains were found in a dumpster in Hollywood, which is another case that we have been talking about on Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. Just thought I'd point that out. Very Everything is connected. I know, right? Sometimes in ways we don't like. Uh, <laughs> uh, detective George Oren is interviewed. He was the detective who took the report from the family at the time, and he describes uh, just his 
trepidation doesn't come close to describing it. I mean, he's basically saying he was looking at all of the facts around Uncle Howard, cancer at a high-profile synagogue. He had performed for the Pope. Um, This was going to be a hard, hard case. The Pope told him that God had kissed his vocal cords or something. Like right. he's, he's a hell of a singer. There, no kidding. They, they, there are some clips of him performing, and it is, he is a remarkably talented man. So um, Stewart is MIA at this point. They don't, they, they can't find him. That's the nephew. Uncle Larry lives an hour away from where this police report was filed. So Detective Oren goes to see him, confronts him with the allegations, and Larry is adamant. He said, I didn't do this. Give me a polygraph. So they do, and he fails. Yeah, not a good strategy. Pretty soon after they give him the results of his polygraph, he just completely collapses. The detective said his lips started quivering and he begins to confess to everything. And it's then that we continue in our interviews with Henry now in the present and he admits that when he and Larry were little boys, he would be abused by Larry on every Sunday night when his parents would go out and leave Larry to babysit him. And he describes the abuse the confusion that it created, it was initially pleasurable, but then he wanted it to stop and he felt like he couldn't ask for it to stop. Larry was his older brother. Um, and then it's revealed that this abuse was trickling down through the generations in this family, that, that Howard had brutalized Larry for most of his life. Um and in the interview, Henry is sort of trying to make sense of all of this now. Like, he, he really believes that to Larry's twisted mind, he was expressing a distorted version of love. But, but it's an Howard, electrifying moment because he's literally sitting there on the sofa in his childhood home. Right. Talking right. to his to son on camera. It is not like some detached thing. This is it's it's like a therapy moment. He is. Because, and Sasha gives him the option. He says, you know, you don't have to talk about these. He's like, no, I want to be clear with you and for this record, you know, about what actually happened. And in very specific detail, he talks about what happened on that sofa where he's sitting. Right. And when Sasha was a little boy, and this was all coming to, you know, a, a case, turning into a criminal case, Henry said to him, I, I know it's true because of what was done to me when I was a little kid. And that's the first time Jackie hears anything about the fact that Henry was abused. And she's furious. It she's just, just, just loses it. It just, yeah. uh, ultimately, it is, you can see how it hits their relationship like a nuclear bomb. They have been through all of this therapy, all of this reporting, all of this situation, and now, for the first time, it was Howard. They said, he says, Howard hurt me as a result in some way. And and when contacted, I think it was by phone, like on speakerphone or something with the therapist, he says, well, I know that it's true because he did it to me. And Mm -hmm. she realizes that he has as Becca was pointing out from that overheard argument earlier, that he has allowed these men who abused him as a child into their home and access to their children. And, mm-hmm. she, and, and, and through the therapeutic process has not mentioned 
that that happened to him, and she just loses it. And I'm I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit because Henry addresses this point at a later point in the documentary, and and I, I think it's sort of relevant to talk about now. He says that it doesn't address why he didn't speak up during the therapeutic process. I think that's something that Henry is going to hang over Henry's head forever. But he says, when it came to letting them into the home, he said, I thought it was me. I thought they did that to me because of me. I didn't have an understanding of sexual abuse as something that was repeated through generations. I just thought I was the cause of it. And that's something that so many victims struggle with you know that that, that like i think i did something yeah. wrong or that it was done he to me said he I had ptsd that it was yeah. a, that his his sense of being responsible for his victimhood was what colored his response to that truth right six days after larry's confession they catch up with stewart his son stewart is charged with 16 counts Uh, Larry's confession is allowed at trial, and his trial is swift. He's sentenced to 17 to 22 years. Stewart is scheduled to go on trial after his father, and having seen how his father's trial progressed, he decides to take a plea deal, and he admits to having been abused himself. Again, getting back to the terrible cycle of abuse moving through generations. He does a half to, he's sentenced to a half to two years, maybe it's one and a half, and my notes are wrong on this, at a halfway house. Um, he violates well, he goes his to prison probation. first, and then he's allowed out after a year oh, and a okay. half to live in a halfway house, and there's very specific rules that he has to meet in order to continue on a probationary um, sentence, something like that. Mm-hmm. And he does Two years. Do Two years from Larry and Stewart's conviction until Howard's preliminary hearing. And this is the beginning of watching how Howard's influence, powerful friends, and money affect how he proceeds through the criminal system as a result of this case. There's a very big difference. But also Um, who Howard is. Yes. I mean, it really, to me, his response to all of this, particularly in the face of the testimony of his own two brothers and this horrible thing that's happened in the family, this reveals just the depth of, of, of what a monster Howard truly is. Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. When it comes to documenting the abuse perpetuated by Uncle Howard, the drawings that Sasha produces are terrifying. And what Sasha says to the therapist is that Howard, in the way that so many horrible abusers of children 
to threaten Sasha's life if he told. I mean, I just can't imagine. Threatened a four-year-old. Yeah, if you tell, I will kill you. Yeah. And displayed anger, which is reflected in the drawings. He literally draws Howard with devil horns. And, you know. And Henry says of his own experience, Sasha's father, Henry, says of his own experience with being abused by the two older siblings, that what Larry did, he thought, was, as you said, an an strange expression of love in their Mm -hmm. screwed up in their screwed up way. He said, but with Howard, it was like a demonstration of dominance, that it Mm -hmm. was about causing pain, that it was about the viciousness. It was about the physical assault. It was a reminder that rape is actually an act of violence and not an act of sex. Right. Yeah. That it's an Um, assault. Henry, uh, goes into kind of an analysis of his own family at this point, because I think part of the question that's hanging over this to a certain degree is, okay, so this is generational. It was present in these other men in the family, these other two men. Why was Henry not an abuser? They never land on that question directly, but I felt like this was sort of their attempt to answer it, which is that a year after Henry was born, his father had a nearly fatal heart attack and his mother went to work for the first time. And suddenly the caregiver role in the house shifted. His father was home and caring for Henry. And his father was a very gentle and compassionate and generous man where his mother had not been. And he feels it was his mother's influence as the primary uh, caretaker for Howard and Larry that made a real difference in how the boys were brought up. And he doesn't go so far as to blame his mother for the fact that those boys became abusers, but that it was a, that it, they might as well have grown up in different homes, the way he, he describes it. He credits his father with helping him to be a more loving man. Right. And one of the things that the therapist, that, um, that Sasha's therapist ultimately says of Henry is that, in a way, Henry was doing the thing that was his duty. He did not perpetuate. He did not abuse. Right. That that was the way in which... Henry carried forward his own part of the legacy was to not do what Larry and Howard did as he mm-hmm. became an adult. That 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 in a strange way that that was what was the out the upshot of of this the this minuscule difference in their rearing. One still has to wonder who abused Howard to begin with. Because right. you have to think, but since Howard has chosen to be a monster. Um, and to fight this and act as though it didn't happen, to Im- impugn his own nephew and his yeah. own brothers um, is uh, so you just you have no concept of what it right. was there's, that, that happened. There's to happen. no getting access to that story. Uh, we then uh, adult Sasha goes to visit the Montgomery County Courthouse in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and it's there that we're introduced to Risa Vetri Fairman, who was the district attorney who handled the case against Howard. At least I don't know if she handled the cases against the other brothers, but she was the, the well, head DA. The other brothers were sort of more settled, so it was less of an event. This was a much bigger deal. One of the things that happened with Howard that they make clear is that because of all the money. That he was able, mm-hmm. the Temple Emmanuel had a huge fundraiser to mm-hmm. develop this huge slush fund of legal um, defenses for Howard's on Howard's behalf, um, swearing to his, you know, uh, his uh, upstanding moral character in their congregation all these years, which may well have been true. I mean, he was 
may have deceived them as well, although one has to think that they would take the word of his own brothers. Um, but they did. And so there was an enormous and exhaustive series of motions and processes to delay the proceedings. And so by the time we get to Sasha interviewing the, um, the, the woman, the, 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 the prosecutor, um, mm-hmm. who does do that, we're on the other side. Finally, we're able mm-hmm. to get to a place where um, Howard can be at least called to account. And she describes what happens around the arrest in a way that reflects a lot of what you just described, Eric, which is she said they arrest Howard in New York and he immediately calls the head DA in Manhattan on his cell phone. And the head DA subverted the usual booking process. They didn't hold him where they would typically hold him. He was brought to another place, you know, and that was the beginning of the defense attorneys just filing motion after motion after motion. And this is when we get into the sort of the the legal system aspect of this whole story that I think you you brought up at the beginning of this. And, and Sasha's influence on how these cases are handled or the influence of Sasha's case, at least in this state, which would be Pennsylvania, um, Sasha is forced to endure an endless series of interviews about this abuse as a result of these endless motions. And the strategy, as the DA basically points out, is to try to get Sasha to slip up on the details of the story. Yeah. This is a technique that investigators use all the time in more targeted and focused ways. The reason they'll keep a murder suspect in an interrogation room overnight if they can is to see if their story starts to slip up. But this is a young boy who is now in his teenage years by the time this is going to trial. And you're going to say that his, uh, one of the examples they used was he forgets the color of a shirt somebody was wearing on an, around an event that happened when he was four years old. I mean, it was, it was the definition of, of, of using technicalities to kind of subvert the course of justice. Well, I think he was a teenager by the time they got to trial, but I think he was not even that old when they went to, the initial, the first time that he faced Howard in court, was he? He was right. He seemed much younger than that to me. I, 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 there was footage of him walking into court with a big kind of curly head of hair as a teenager. Well, his, his bot, his bar mitzvah was after the first, so he was Jesus. at least younger than thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And they came up with, he worked with the therapist because he was terrified of having to testify to in court against Howard. Howard. Is this the thing that still happens? I thought it was now that child, child victims could testify in a remote room or they didn't have to go into court. Maybe with the so. Actual... But at this point in yeah. time, one of the things, like as I said at the outset, one of the things that this documentary reveals was in that point in time, the the... the Sasha wasn't victimized as much by the legal system as he was by the people who abused him. Yeah. Um, they eventually are, they're, they're on the verge of going to trial. They've got one felony charge against Howard, which they think they can win, and they've got four misdemeanor charges. And it's getting to the point where they filed every motion that they could conceivably file. The DA is not blinking. The moment has arrived, and then finally the, de- the defense attorney for Howard approaches her about a plea deal. But this, but, this but, remi- but you're skipping past the, the earlier... There are two different court dates. The first court okay. date is the one where Sasha has to face him, and that's the one that, to right. me, was the more significant. The first you're court right. date and, 
it is where uh, go ahead and that's where you're right i skipped over one of the most emotional parts of the documentary which is sasha's fear about testifying in front of his uncle um, and sasha changing his name right this there's so much in this there's fact um the therapist works with him to come up with a system that he can use to feel safe and comfortable testifying in court. And part of that is changing his name to take his grandfather's name. His great-grandfather. His great-grandfather, that's On right. On his mother's side. Right. And so, and they also provide him with his great-grandfather's yarmulke. And if he feels... Uh, you know, on, if he's threatened. in the box, and yeah, if he feels threatened, he can put on the yarmulke. That's the agreement that he makes with the therapist. And they even come up with a prayer that he can say a to prayer. himself about Absolutely. invoking his great grandfather to protect him and be there with him and whatever in the in um, in the courtroom and in, as he goes through this process. Yeah, um, so he does it, and he puts on the yarmulke while testifying. They, they put him the on moment. the stand, and the the um, the lawyer keeps at him. The the Howard's mm-hmm. lawyer keeps at the little kid on the stand, saying, "Well, you know, it was somebody who looked like your uncle." And and uh, Sasha corrects him and says, "No, it was my uncle. It was him." Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Well, it was an older man like your uncle." Mm-hmm. He was like, "No, it was my uncle." But like, and he gives him examples of like, "Well, what if he'd lost weight or whatever? Like, it was was it heavier, mm-hmm. skinnier, or whatever?" And finally, Sasha, this kid, younger than thirteen at least, I'm thinking like maybe ten or eleven. Mm-hmm. Like it was two more years after the inquest that it came up and by then he was a teenager. So I'm thinking he's probably 10 years old on the stand. He says to the lawyer, he finally says, my mother could gain or lose a hundred pounds. And I would still know that it was my mother. It was Mm -hmm. him. It was that man. It was my uncle Howard who did this Mm -hmm. to me. And that like, like it apparently shook the courtroom because it was such mm-hmm. a profound moment of mm-hmm. that child. And what they said was that prior to doing that, as this question was happening, little Sasha paused and reached in and got out his yarmulke mm-hmm. and put it mm-hmm. on. And then he said that mm-hmm. in response to that uncle, it was, it was a pretty yeah. moving moment in the, um, yeah. in, 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 that child defending himself against this son of a bitch who knows that mm-hmm. he did this to him. I just, oh, yeah. it was, it was really, it was impactful. Yeah. And I think part of it was seeing how, how the intact and good parts of his family were able to help him get to that moment. You know, how patient and loving his mother had been with the process. Not necessarily with his father, because she had her anger there. But even the father, all of them were supporting him through this. And the unbelievable honesty of the family to be able to sit down and make this documentary with him. Now, as you pointed out earlier, the father going to the childhood home and describing what happened to him. to um, Demonstrating how he was raped in the bathroom at that house Mm -hmm. the first time, bent over the tub. Like, it was all... When Sasha... They have footage from Sasha's bar mitzvah, and he describes it as being surrounded by a wall of love. 
yeah. to protect him from a world that he is, you know, maybe feeling a little dubious of at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- that ultimately, thank you for pointing that out. That testimony yeah. is what resulted in the plea deal. Um, so as the DA says, every time a defense attorney comes to you and there are charges that are both felony and misdemeanor, they want the plea deal to be they only a plea to the misdemeanor. And, and the, um, because the felony charge in this case would have been punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Right. Sasha decides they should accept the plea. That's the decision. Not initially. See, they present yeah. the, the DA says she wanted it to be Sasha's decision because he had been through so much to get to that point. It took two more years after that inquest to get to the point where they're actually going to bring him into the court of charges. And that's when the, the plea, when the expensive, well-paid-for lawyers um, present the plea, uh, you know, say that they're now interested in talking about it. And mm-hmm. so she asked Sasha, and his initial response is, no, we're going to trial. I want him... Um, punished and then upon further reflection apparently discussion with the family and I, I think it was a revel I, I think it revealed that how young Sasha was because mm-hmm. what I think his family pointed out to them him is you need to move on right mm-hmm. if you if we choose to do this this will cont- this will drag it out for years more you know, mm-hmm. there'll be the conviction and then there'll be the appeals and then there'll be the, you know, it will never end. If we get him to right. plead, then he will be, I assume he is now a registered sex offender and all of the other things that he is. Um, but for pleading to the the misdemeanors, right, um, you will be free. The, the, the psychologist um, who was working with Sasha says that he told Sasha at the time after the inquest You've already won. Everything else that happens after this is mm-hmm. somebody else's responsibility. What you had to do was go in and face Howard and tell your mm-hmm. truth, and you did it, and you won. Mm-hmm. Like after right. that speech about if my mother gained 100 pounds, I would still know mm-hmm. it was my mother. It was him. Um, right. That was really a powerful moment and really his moment of victory. And I think Sasha yeah. saw the my take. He didn't really say anything about it in the in the in the documentary. Mm-hmm. But I think Sasha saw the truth in that because right. they decided that, yes, indeed, they would actually accept the plea. Jackie calls and says. And the plea. Results in Howard being sentenced to 12 years of probation. And the judge says, before you leave here, you have to take a tour of the prison. Yeah. So you see where you will end up if you violate the terms of your probation. And uh, he does. Um, I'm going to read the codas in the time we have left. These are are the title cards that pop up at the end of the documentary that sort of let you know where everybody ended up. Uncle Larry served 14 years in prison. Uh, He's now on probation and he attends group therapy. Following his therapist counsel, he declined to be interviewed for the film. Stewart spent two years in and out of prison, and he passed away in 2016 at the age of 42. The cause of death is not given. Howard retired from Temple Emanuel in 2006, and there is an interview about his career which was posted on YouTube in 2015. I'm going to venture that the comments have been turned off for that I expect they have to have been. Yeah. He still lives in New York City. Um, Sasha's case inspired the creation of a child advocacy center called Mission Kids, 
and it addresses the major point that All was raised about stuff. the legal system. The, it consolidates the interview process. It sets up a literal physical facility where the interview can be conducted in a safe space without a lot of people in the room with the child once, and all of the relevant legal authorities are allowed to monitor and watch the interview as it happens. And they take you through the conference room where where they sit, and then they show you the remote camera that's uh, on the chairs, and the the two chairs in the interview room. Um, Henry won an Emmy later in life for documentary filmmaking not for this for for the, he didn't Whatever, actually direct yeah. this sasha did but henry went on to continue to have a career as a documentary filmmaker becca is pursuing her master's degree in social work and sasha lives in montana with his wife lauren and continues to work as an advocate he's he would talk to somebody in dallas and somebody in colorado and about mm-hmm. development of similar centers he is trying to carry forward what was done in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania into other communities so that children in his similar situation are not subjected to the same secondary abuse that the legal system mm-hmm. subjected him to, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was noteworthy. And Jackie, his mom, they're not together anymore. I think she's remarried and she is on the board of that um, mm-hmm. that center that was set up in Philadelphia. That was one of the other things that was... Yeah. was revealed and they kind I mean, of like and he's starting his life as a filmmaker and it, you know in the end i felt like this documentary walked you through hell but then it brought you back out again and i mean that's the nature of the story i mean the nature of the story for me was the resilience of this family and their commitment to this child you know in the wake of learning what had been done to him this would this something like this I, there's so many stories out there of it destroys the family to the level that the family can't really care for the child yeah. anymore they become lost in their own sense of guilt to a degree that becomes self-obsessed and they can't show up. And I just, you know, even with a divorce happening between the two parents, there was still this, like you said, the wall of love, as he described it. It was really, I mean, because when we were in the middle of it, I was like, oh boy, having been through so many other abuse documentaries that we've reviewed and having just seen everything fall apart and go to shit for the people that you, you, for the victims, it's just, this was really... This was remarkable. And to have it be an abuse narrative told by the actual victim. Yeah, yeah. that was really. And I would I would highlight also the scene where he tells his great grandfather that he's taking Mm -hmm. his name. Uh, Mm -hmm. Took my breath away. It took Mm -hmm. the grandfather's breath away, the great grandfather's breath away. That that moment of him saying that, you know, that he wanted to he didn't want the name of he wanted to be a part of that family and to right. carry his name forward because he changes his name. The the, the, the great great grandfather's name was Joseph Newlonger and he changes his name to Sasha Joseph Newlonger. So he is literally carrying that name forward into the world. That's the right. loving, caring person he wants to carry forward into the world and not um, yeah. the monsters. Uh, I just it, it was a, it was a very emotional experience for me. So I'm, you're you're are you? I'm not. The word glad is not necessarily appropriate. You were you? Did you feel that the reasons that you picked this documentary were sort of fulfilled? That it was borne out? Was it the story that you were expecting, or did it go in a direction you? Didn't I tell expect? you, it was better than I expected. I thought it was yeah. going to be much more salacious and live in the you know there's a tendency in our culture to live in as i always call the victim driven life that mm-hmm. it was going to be you know 
me, 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 me. And this justifies all these terrible things and these behavioral bad choices that I made. And none of that was the case. It was a much more... It was about recovery. It was not about about being subsumed by um, the tragedy itself. And so I found it much more hopeful, much less salacious. And because they were so incredibly graphically and brutally honest, it and because it was they were telling their own story, the salaciousness was dismissed. Right. It was there was the power in their account and it was in their integrity and their honesty and their owning yeah. their own story. As so opposed I would to somebody, recommend it. Even yeah, if you've heard us tell this story, I would recommend watching this. This is a powerful piece of filmmaking. And as it's the first thing I think he's ever done, I am interested to see who Sasha turns out to be as a filmmaker as he goes forward in life. Because, wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, in, in sort of a deviation from our usual schedule, we are doing two true crime TV clubs back to back. When we are back next week, it will also be an installment of Christopher and Eric's true crime TV club. This one is featuring a two part installment from one of our favorite series that we've covered so far. And that series is called The Case That Haunts Me. We will be doing a two parter. We will we will talk about parts one and two in one episode of our podcast. But if you are one of those people who enjoys watching ahead before you listen, um, we will be discussing the episodes, The Evil Fantasy, Parts 1 and 2. Those are the first two episodes of the show's third season. And the reason that we're doing this, that we're going out of order, that we're going to have two weeks of this, is that the following week is the anniversary of um, the the discovery of and death of, of William Newton, a case that we've had some interest in, and particularly Christopher here. Um, and yeah. we've done, we've continued through you as you've probably seen on social media um, to uh, solicit responses. And, and we will report on where we are with that in depth and also in the moment of that in observance and respect for um, William's loss and William's family's loss um, mm-hmm. continue to try and call attention to this, 30-year-old unsolved uh, case. Absolutely. And, and since you brought it up, Eric, and thank you, I want to put out there that we've also established an email address for tips and recollections or anything that someone who might have known William or any of the associates might be willing to share. The address is William Newton Investigation. That's two L's in William. And the last name is Newton, N-E-W-T-O-N, Investigation, no spaces, no underscores or anything at gmail.com and that email address is open for you to send anything which you think might be of help to this investigation until then i'm christopher rice and i'm eric shaw quinn and you've been listening to tdps presents christopher and eric thanks This is TDPS.